Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how these choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from a wonderful friend and writer, Rachel Berenbaum, who is going to share the first pages of her second novel, Atomic Anna, which was a huge hit when it came out and still is. It's truly an atomic book. Good morning, Rachel. Hello, Michelle. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I love having you on the show. Rachel also has her own podcast, by the way, called Check This Out, and you should probably check it out because <laughs> um, she interviews new and diverse writers. Um, so I really recommend that. Um, also, her debut, A Bend in the Stars, was named a New York Times Summer Reading Selection and a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Selection. It was a Boston Globe bestseller. Her second novel, Atomic Anna, that we're going to hear from, was a Massachusetts Book Award must-read. It was nominated for a Goodreads, Goodreads Choice Award and was named an honor book in fiction by the Association of Jewish Libraries. Uh, she lives in Brookline, and is, if she wasn't already busy enough, because she also raises children, <laughs> which alone wouldn't even a, a elected town meeting member. So, Rachel, I don't know how you do it. We might have to do another interview figuring how you schedule your time. <laughs> um, but, okay, Rachel. Yes. Give us a summary of the book so we can understand what we're hearing in these first pages. Yes, thanks again for having me, Michelle. I just, I'm so excited to be here. Um, so Atomic Anna is the story of three generations of women who work together to build a time machine that they use to stop Chernobyl. So you hear the word time machine and you think science fiction, but actually it's really fiction. It's a story about love. It's a story about connections and questioning your past. A time machine is really about, can I fix the mistakes that I made in my life? And that's what these women are ultimately asking. I mean, for you, you're making a, a differentiation between fiction and science fiction. What's the line there for you? Yes, I mean, there's really a, a, a hardcore genre of sci-fi time travel novels, right? Yeah. And they have strict rules and people expect certain things to happen by certain pages or certain points in the novel. Um, and that's not what this is. This is not hardcore sci-fi. Um, you know, no aliens, <laughs> nothing like that. This is really about love. And so you get into more fiction when the story is about the characters, their feelings, their journey, right? So yes, yeah. the plot is to build a time machine to stop Chernobyl, but really the book is about why. Why do you want to go back and change something with the time machine? Yeah, and I think that's what readers are really responding to with this. All right, let's hear. Now, folks, we have another prologue starting a book, even though people say the prologues are out apparently they're not so <laughs> rachel we're going to hear from part of your prologue um and then we're going to talk about the decisions you made in writing it yes thank you i'm a huge fan of the prologue keep I the prologue too. i know <laughs> right long live the prologue long live the prologue okay so um prologue this is set in april 1986 soviet union the scientist anna berkova was asleep in her narrow bed in Pripyat, the closed city that housed workers from Chernobyl. She was cold, but then again, she was always cold. The walls in her building were thin. 
Damp and wind clawed through cracks and she huddled under blankets to escape them. She had fallen asleep working on the amplifier she hoped would increase efficiency at the nuclear power plant, the prototype lying on her chest. It was small and crude, a circuit board covered with diodes and capacitors. She didn't hear the explosion or feel the catastrophic shudder as reactor number four ripped apart, its insides flayed, releasing the most dangerous substances known to man. Nor did she witness the shock of light that stabbed the dark, because at that exact moment, Anna tore through time. It was her first jump, and it was an accident. When she opened her eyes, she was on her back in the snow, alone, on a mountain, clutching the smoking amplifier. Her head felt like it was being split in two. Her hands throbbed. They were burned and raw. She didn't know why. She assumed she was dreaming, but she never felt pain in dreams, only fear when nightmares had her seeing soldiers at her door. It was why she still wore boots to bed, even now as an old woman, so she could run from them like her mother should have run all those years ago. But on that mountain, there were no soldiers. She put the amplifier in her pocket and her scorched hands in the snow. That hurt even more. Wind slid through her nightgown and scraped at her skin. And with every sensation, she was more convinced this wasn't a dream. This was real. She quickly understood that she needed to find shelter or she would freeze. She spotted a building in the distance. Smoke stained the sky above, leaking from the chimney. If she could just get to that building, inside she'd be safer. She slipped and clawed her way to her feet and forced herself forward. The building was narrow and long, built with stone. As she stumbled toward it, she passed a spot in the snow that bloomed red with fresh blood trailing in a long line. Her panic grew. Perhaps the KGB had left her here. It was no secret Gorbachev detested her. Her safety protocols were expensive and slowed production. But without Anna and those protocols, there would be no RBMK reactors. And those reactors were Gorbachev's pride. He wouldn't kill her, she assured herself. Besides, if he did, it wouldn't be like this. It would be with a bullet. This was too elaborate. The front door wasn't locked. Just before she opened it, there was a flash. And that, the pain in her head, was gone. She barreled through the entrance, aware of heat as it rolled over her like a wave. She spilled onto a bench. A black parka hung next to her. She put it on, and slowly her body warmed. As her temperature rose, so did her terror. The smoke from the chimney meant someone was there, but it was too quiet. She peered down the hall and had the feeling that this complex was familiar, but she couldn't quite place it. Hello, she called. Her voice shook from fear and cold and only silence hit her back. She pulled the parka tighter and that was when she realized it was wet. She looked at her charred hands. They were covered in blood. The parka she was wearing was soaked with it. So was a black uniform on the floor. She let out a scream. But again, she was met only with silence. Anyone, she called. She crept deeper into the building, down the hallway. The walls were covered in bright murals. 
Adrenaline had her mind working faster than her body, and as she stumbled through, she caught glimpses of the art of what seemed to be three superwomen with capes and high boots. In the kitchen, the table was toppled, chairs were overturned, Anna grabbed a knife, held it up as best she could. That was when she recognized the lead-lined box from her laboratory flung into the corner, covered with warning stickers she had created. The box was made to hold pellets of enriched uranium oxide, the fuel used in the RBMK reactors. She heard a moan. Anna? Wonderful. Anna jumped back. Awesome. I'm going to stop you there because I just, I was like, I think we need time to talk. And I told, I, I told Rachel to read longer than that, but I was like, no, 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 there's too much to talk about right now. So sorry about that. But so I wanted you to get to the Anna um, because there's somebody in this new space that knows her, which itself is <laughs> strange because um, she doesn't know this place. And if we can continue to the next page, the person actually identifies herself um, as who, Rachel? Her daughter, her long her daughter. lost daughter, a strange yeah. daughter, Molly. And so we get introduced to Molly. She said her name is Manya. And what's great about that is that the book then moves into Manya or Molly's point of view in the, in the next chapter, um, in, the, in what's called the first chapter, but we have already met her. So we already have that connection between chapters. And so it doesn't feel such a jarring jump. Um, so I generally call that sort of thing a pivot point where you're actually using something from the previous chapter or the previous section or the previous scene um, to help us move, kind of creating a bridge, a pivot point. Other writers have called it, Celestine calls it a baton. She hands off a baton to the next section to try to get us over that jump and it just makes it less jarring for the reader and makes us feel like we're in really good hands um, with the writer. Okay, Rachel, you also start this with a family chart. Um, is that something you chose to do or is that something your publisher wanted you to do? Yeah, so there's a family tree in the very beginning because there are a lot of family relationships. And um, even you mentioned, so Manya is um, Anna's daughter. Manya is the Russian name, but when she moves to America, she becomes Molly. So it gets confusing, right? Because you have to remember, oh, right, she took on an American name because she wanted to assimilate, blend in, right? So um, I was finding that readers were having a hard time keeping track you know, in one family. And so Molly was adopted by Anna's best friends, right? And so to remembering which parent was which and who goes with who and, you know, name changes like that. Um, I really wanted that family tree to be in the book. And so that's how that happened. Perfect. And, you know, I love when we move into the first chapter, we understand who Manya Molly is through that name change. And she changes her name at what, age seven or yeah. age 10? <laughs> Super young. Super I mean, young. Think yeah, because she goes to school and people are teasing her, Manya, right? They think that's not an American name. And all she wants is to be American, right? So it makes sense that she'd be like, forget Manya, call me Molly. But and a lot of kids would cower under that teasing, but you this is not Manya or Mala, Molly. I mean, she she is very precocious and she knows exactly what she wants, and her parents just kind of sit back and let her her adopted parents let her do it, which I love. Yeah. Okay. Did, um, were these always your first pages? Did you always start with a prologue? 
So I always had a prologue, um, but these were actually some of the very last pages that I wrote. Um, the very first pages that I wrote and actually workshopped, I think, in like in one of your workshops years ago. Yeah. Um, you can find on page 415 of the hardback. <laughs> oh, okay. Those are the first pages. And that's where I thought I would start the book. Um, and it's actually a flashback to 1917. But I was writing and writing from 1917. And I had like 100 or 200 pages. And I just realized I was so bored. And all I wanted to do was get to Chernobyl, to this moment that became the prologue. So I just cut all those pages uh, and, you know, started with the prologue. And then those very first pages were reduced down to something like 10 pages at yeah. the end of the book now. You know, I love that you also follow that instinct because I think a lot of writers, they're like, oh, I just can't get into my book or I can't, you know, I'm tired of it. I've been working on it too long, yada, yada. And sometimes it's because you're writing the wrong part (laughs) or because you're you've taken it in the wrong direction a direction that you think you should be doing uh but it's but it's not working for you so yeah I mean I think you really need to listen to that if you're bored your reader will be bored so stop and write and realize (laughs) what do you want to really be writing and go there yeah yeah because if you're not interested in it, there's no way your uh, reader is going to be interested in it at all. Okay. Um, now, so we get the scientist Anna Brokova was asleep in her narrow bed, the closed city that housed workers from Chernobyl. And even, you know, any mention of Chernobyl, I think we're immediately leaning in. Um, we, we know that a disaster is, has, you know, is about to happen, is happening. Um, so we're, we're already there. And she's actually there at the moment when the reactor four goes off, but then she's not. Then you actually take her to another place entirely. And what I think really works well here is, is we're introduced just, we just get some good physical details. Um, her hands are burned and raw. She's only making sense of the place um, through sensory details. And that's what we are give, given as the reader as well. Um, and we feel that we're in good hands because we're being introduced to this new place as Anna is being introduced to it. And we're making sense of it as Anna is be- making sense of it. And so all the questions of like, I'm confused. Where is she? What is she? We know that it's intentional. We know what, that we're supposed to be there. And what's right in front of us is very, very clear. You know, when she she goes into that room and there's the cloak hanging by her and she sits on the bench, like what's in front of us is very, very clear. Um, and so it just works well to, to keep keep us reading and keep us going. Um, this is considered a loud opening, Rachel. Uh, right? Yes, yes. I love the loud opening. I'm often yes. too loud in early drafts. <laughs> so loud openings are usually wonderful, particularly for more commercial fiction. Um, they grab the reader. We feel that something is happening. I don't think you, I mean, Okay, you've got Chernobyl going off and then you have a time jump. And then there's there's a whole lot of blood. This it, There's a lot allowed here. How did you manage that? Because a lot of writers will start with a loud opening, but then they don't know what to do next. Because yeah. once you have a loud opening, you kind of, what do you do? How do you go quiet again? How do you keep building from there? How do you keep moving forward? Um, did you find that in your process or how did you handle that? 
Um, so because I actually wrote this prologue pretty much after I wrote, um, you know, the bulk of the book, um, everything in there is the story. There's literally a clue in every sentence as to yeah. what you're going to read throughout the novel. So I, yeah. it wasn't like I sat down and wrote this and then was like, then what? It was more like, here are all the pieces, right? So she's walking, she sees this, you know, there's blood in the snow, you're going to find out where that came from later, right? Why is the parka wet? Why is there that bench? Why does she recognize it? Um, every one of those details in there is going to be explained throughout the novel. So um, it's it's very sparse because if you imagine, if you're in this terrified moment, all you have is what's in front of you. You're not thinking about other things. You're not thinking about those murals that she passes, these super women. But I'm going to go into great detail about how those super women came to be in you know that mural on there. So this is really a map for how to read the book and for what's coming. And that's how I think of this prologue. And also, you know, we get this, I'm the, when we find out the person speaking to her is Manya, she says, I'm Manya, your daughter. Um, and then we get a line, Anna hadn't seen her daughter since she was a baby. So we know um, that the rest of the story is going to fill in that question. You're setting up so many questions here. How about tonally, though? Um, in terms of a loud opening and then going to the first chapter. Did that feel natural to you? How did you handle that? Yeah, I mean, you can't, as a reader, as a, as a person, right, even talking to a friend, you can't spend an entire conversation or entire 400-page book right on the edge of your seat and nervous. You yeah. have to be interested and then you have to relax into the story. So how does it come to pass that someone, you know, builds a time machine by accident? Right? and finds herself on this mountain with all these clues. So then you sort of relax into the story and it, it seemed very natural to me. And you have to think as you um, as you get into later drafts, not in early drafts, um, the tension of the story needs to right, build and then it goes down a little, builds more down a little. You need to keep people interested by you know that constant buildup and you can't have a straight line of tension or no one's gonna read that whole thing. Absolutely, we'll get exhausted and it'll feel false. Yeah. Um, and then, so you found your prologue basically at the end of your draft. Um, yeah. How do you feel about, there's a lot of writers that say you have to know your ending in order to know your beginning. And so what you basically did is made almost your end in your beginning. Yeah. Um, what have, have you done that before? How do you feel about getting to your endings and using that for your beginnings? Yeah, um, I love that question um, because, you know, so many writers have different answers to this. So I just, I can't wait to hear what other writers say. But for me, when I sit down to write a book, I always have to know where my characters are starting and where they're going. Yeah. But to be very clear, that almost always changes, right? So I have this line for them and I think I know who they are even. And then I'm writing the pages and maybe I'm on page 80 or 280 or whatever. And I realize, no, that's not what's happening. So I always have the line drawn, but I'm always changing it, always erasing it and redrawing it as I go. Yeah. And I think that's important too, because, well, because I also, I, I tend to be a planner, but I don't necessarily call myself a plotter, but I like to be able to see the road ahead. But you have to be able to follow the page and follow what's happening in your writing process and alter it according to your energy, your interest. Um, if you just continue to follow the plan, you can kill the book, right? Yes. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. 
you need that plan because you have to, to write any kind of story, to tell a story, there has to be growth, right? You mm -hmm. have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you can't just sit down and write unless you know what that growth is going to be. And so even if it changes or the pacing changes, you still need to know that you're going to start in one place and end in another. And you have to plan for that. That does not just happen. Mm -hmm. Now, when you were working with editors, um, how did they approach this prologue? Did you Were you already working with an editor when you decided this was going to be your prologue? What was their response? Um, yeah, so I was working with my editor um, before this was written, the prologue was written, and I was saying to her, you know, I just feel like, like, where is Anna? Like, like, where do I put her in this book physically, right? Where is she? I feel like she's floating. She's in too many scenes. How do I, you know, really dig her into a space? And my editor was like, oh, well, it's simple. She's on top of the mountain for the whole book. And, <laughs> and she said this, I had just caught her off guard. You know, it was like a two minute phone call. And that sort of clarified the book for me. It's like, of course, Anna is going to spend the entire book the first little part getting to that mountaintop and then she's going to be on that mountaintop for the whole book and uh once i had that the prologue came together and the rest of the book just all of a sudden which was kind of a disaster <laughs> came together um and it just made sense wonderful um i mean you tend to write big complex books um and so and you let them be messy at first you explore all angles and then you're able to rein them in and create this really complex mix of time and point of view and it's just incredible work um was there ever a time that an, that your editor um i mean what wanted to push you in a direction that you might not have wanted to go or yeah um, i think so this is a time travel book Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I jump around in time and that can be difficult to keep track of right? Yeah. for your reader and for me as the writer. I, mm -hmm. I love time travel novels, um, movies, comics, anything. Right. Because it's always about regret. It's always about what can I change? Why do I need to change? So that's like the ultimate character development. <laughs> Literally, how am I going to change atone for, you know, my mistakes? And, um, you know, so a lot of my conversations with my editor were around how do we clarify time jumps? So it was never, you know, let's not turn this into a time machine book or time travel, but it was more, you know, this is too complex. We need right. to simplify, simplify, simplify. And I appreciate that because as the writer, we are so, I am so in this book, right? I can yeah. see a sentence and tell you where we are in the book. Um, and probably quote the next one, right? I mean, right, we know every little detail. So it's hard to take that step back and say, oh, what do you mean you're lost, right? So that's where I got a lot of the help. Um, and then we ultimately decided, um, you know, I came up with this idea that every chapter heading would be the date or every section. So September, 1970, and then it tells you 22 years before Molly dies on Mount Aragats. So you know right from page one that that's going to happen. She's going to mm -hmm. die, right? I mean, we, I read about the blood and you would have known mm -hmm. in the next page. And then every single section is rooted with how many years until Molly dies and where are we? 
and that becomes your clock. So yeah. everyone, um, uh, most novels need a clock in some way, something that we yes. are approaching, something that we are worried about, a countdown um, that we're going towards. Your countdown is quite long. Yes. Um, did that become difficult for you in terms of keeping the tension going? Um, it didn't because I could uh, jump around a lot. Yeah. Um, again, because it was time machine. So, I mean, I love clocks, clear clocks. I think those literally make stories tick, right? You're terrified. You're rooting for something to happen by a certain time. If there's no clock, what are we waiting for? Right. right. There's always something we're waiting for. Um, and in, you know, a more traditional novel, you have to have, I think a shorter clock can be much more powerful. In my first book, it was a much shorter clock, right? It was a couple of months. Right. But mm -hmm. here I could jump around because I could say, all right, 1917, like now we're boring, right? We're done. We got our 10 pages. Let's jump up to 1940 or 19, whatever, you know? Yeah. And so that's, that's why that worked. Yeah. So if you're if you're doing multiple timelines, you can have a longer clock or or jumps like this. Um, sh normally, a shorter clock is just easier to handle in terms of keeping the tension going. I mean, if you just think about it, like if someone has ten years to do something versus ten days, <laughs> they could wait around a really long time to get started. You know, they could be eating right. a sandwich for the first nine years and then suddenly <laughs> decide that they need to get going. Um, yeah. So shorter timelines, except when you're doing a brilliant time jump novel, um, can be really, really helpful. Yeah. Now, you also talked about planting all of these clues in the prologue. Um, and it sounded like you had them already in the version of this that you had later in the book? Or were there ones that you took out because you thought this is too complex? Were there ones that you felt like you had to add in order to get get that clue going in the book? How did you manage um, editing and fig figuring out the change between moving it from later to moving it to the beginning? Yeah, um, I will actually say that um, this prologue, so I probably wrote about 20 different beginning opening scenes before I landed on this prologue. Okay. Yeah. So mm -hmm. by the time I got to this prologue, it was actually easy to write because I had written through the rest of the book. So I already yeah. had all of the clues that I needed to leave. Um, you know, my 20 different starting versions <laughs> were terrible and too broad or too narrow, right? And not working. But by the time I got to this, I knew what clues needed to be there because um, she's coming to the scene basically after the entire book, right? All the action has happened. So we already know how the superwomen murals ended up there, right? And that they have to be there. That's a crucial part of the story. We know why the blood is there and that I, she has to see the blood. So um, I, I guess that's kind of how I knew it was the right start finally, because mm -hmm. all the pieces were there and it was easy to write. Mm -hmm. And I think but I say easy. I just want to like qualify that one more time, like easy after hundreds of pages of drafts. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was so easy to write. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly right. And I also think that the clues are the type that we don't feel like, oh, I need to remember this here. Oh, I need to remember this here. It's it's when we get to later in the book, we have the slight memory. Wait a minute. She said something about that, or wait a minute, I've been prepared for something like this. And we might go back to the first chapter and go, yep, 
there it is. She planted that for me. Um, but it really becomes a kind of puzzle um, for us to, to retain what you've given us, but we can still enjoy it if something slipped past us and then go back to the beginning and go, oh, I should have seen that. I think it works right. perfectly like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love reading books that make me think I'm super smart and I'm like, oh yeah, I pieced that together. Right. <laughs> and I know my readers are super smart. So I like to put it in there so that when they are reading, they're like, oh, right comic book heroes. I remember that, you know, just like you're saying. And then for the reader, it's also a journey. It's like they're they're drawn in more to the book because they're putting these pieces together. It's not just someone talking at them, right? Or just words right. coming at them. They're actively involved in the narrative. And they're actively involved in the narrative because you've also created great characters. I mean, we could have all the clues in the world, all the tricks in the world, all the time jumps and all the bloody whatever's in the world, but none of it would matter if we weren't already caught up with Anna, I, I feel it in, in that very beginning um, and that she's living already a rather difficult life, already a rather desperate life. Right. Um, and, and so I feel like I'm concerned for her already and I'm willing to watch her and then watch what happens to Manya as well. It works so well. Okay, Rachel, I'm gonna have to let you go. We're gonna have to finish up and I need to get everyone to their writing desk. So for everyone else, you can find our full schedule on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two crazy writing challenges that we did in the fall and spring. I really recommend that you go back and look at those because there's a lot of great material for writers from some of our uh, wonderful authors. Um, and you can find any of this on our favorite podcast, on your favorite podcast platform, as well as my favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so other people can find us. All right, Rachel, back to you. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? Um, just be willing to cut them all and start again and again and again and again. You will write your first pages at least a hundred times yeah. before you find them. So don't be afraid to write. They get better every time. That's why we're doing first pages because it's so hard. And because you do have to write them about a hundred times. Mm -hmm. um, and people will be like, wait a minute. I thought this was your first page. Nope, that was my first page 50 times ago. And that's exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right, everyone. I grab a copy of Atomic Anna. And thank you again so much for your time, Rachel. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michelle. I absolutely love you. And I love this show. Thank you. I love you too.